Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together out loud, chapter by chapter, and right now, book by book. But yeah, for right now, that we're back in the New Testament, and in the Gospels, no less, we've been going over all these different books of the Bible, from Jonah and Genesis all the way up to Nehemiah and Ezra. And here, we're back in the New Testament here for these last three episodes, looking at Luke chapter 8. And I think the big question here, especially for a program called Thy Strong Word, is, well, if God's Word is so strong, why does it have such mixed results? So that seems to be what we're getting in here today. A lot of these parables and these stories, and uh, well, these are the these are the fun things to really dig into here. So looking forward to the conversation today with our guest, Pastor Christopher Morandi, pastor at St. John Bingham in Decatur, Indiana. Good morning, brother. Good to have you back. And yeah, looking at the Gospels here again. Yeah, well, and and like you said, you're back in the Gospels, but uh, you, you bring in a Old Testament guy to work on it, so <laughs> it's a pleasure <laughs> to be with you this day. Yeah, well, no, I don't think uh, that's, that's any problem, though, because as we see again and again, if you're, if you're not reading these things against the backdrop of the Old Testament, you're reading them against the backdrop of something else, which is not going to be nearly as helpful as the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And uh, I think we see that here, too, when you look at uh, Luke chapter 8. I think that when you—I mean, when, really, when you just even talk about uh, proclamation or the gospel or calling to repentance, I mean, that's such a big theme in the Old Testament with the prophets. Um, when you look at these Word of God parables here, um, I mean, yeah, I think I think it's very Old Testament-y, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and, and I think particularly, I don't know how much time we'll have to go deep into this, but—, but he he interprets the purposes of his parables by quoting um, Isaiah 6. And so right. that, that's the lens through which Jesus is viewing the response to his parables is, is that, that prophetic utterance right after the call of Isaiah. Right. So you, you got you, you to gotta use the, the Old Testament. Jesus himself is basically saying so. So, uh, yeah. yeah, so good, good stuff today. And uh, it's, it's, it's very uh, packed. I mean, it's, uh, you don't get to read through the chapters of the Gospels, I feel like, that often, because we're so used to just these kind of very small, bite-sized chunks on Sundays. So it'll be, it'll be fun, and it'll also be kind of a challenge, I think, to read the whole chapter as a unit. But, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm ready to give it a try if you are. Yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> All right. Well, before we dig in, would you, brother, start us off with a prayer? Yeah. Lord Jesus Christ, as we prepare to celebrate your birth, we remember how you came into this world for our redemption. In the dead of night, in the darkness, light shone forth. We beg you, O Lord, that you would enlighten our hearts this day, and as we celebrate and prepare for this Christmas tide, that as we study your word, we would see you and your light shining through. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, yeah, I know it feels good to be reading from Luke as well, uh, just uh, with only just a few days to go till, till Christmas here. But, uh, okay, so this is a challenge, but maybe just some introductory remarks. The last thing we read was Esther. Um you could spend a whole <laughs> year just talking about things between Esther and Luke chapter 8, but uh, maybe just a couple of highlights uh, to help establish some context. Well, I, I, it, the, the salvation history of God's people, I mean, Esther is, is the great deliverance text, another one of them, many of them in the Old Testament. That's simply another one uh, where God uh, rescues his people, and that sets the stage for the greatest revelation, the greatest... Uh, uh, example and and climactic one, the one that all the others are pointing to, uh, right. the incarnation of Christ, and of course that that drives Luke's narrative forward from from the beginning. And as we're getting here towards the middle of Luke's gospel, or at least the middle of of the of his of his ministry, uh, we are we're kind of seeing things coalesce. We're seeing, and, and as you titled this program, various responses to the word. We're we're seeing the the different groups kind of interact with Jesus and trying to figure him out, and and essentially him providing a bit of a a window into uh, how people are hearing his word and why, uh, even though he's he's of course the Son of God walking this earth, uh, and there are crowds following him. Not everyone has. Not everyone will. 
Right. Well, and, and that's and that's like well, just as it's no more mysterious than the incarnation itself. But right, th- th- there's the mystery, right? Like if if there's mm-hmm. God in the flesh here speaking, um, if there is the Word of God here, you know why why does it seem so unimpressive, not powerful, not dramatic, right? I mean, this is this is uh, the, the mystery I think that you kind of just grapple with grapple with on that intuitive level. And so it is interesting then that you have the, these parables that, that break it down and say, well, I mean, in some ways, you might think that if God you know, rolls into town, he's just going to overwhelm everyone with his power and might and just that's going to be the whole thing. But, but God mysteriously does not work in such a big, over-the-top, brute force kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's a mysterious way. It's a way that that seems weak and powerless. And that, that of course goes all the way back to, back to Luke two for as wonderful and as beautiful as the, as the imagery is, and we love to rejoice in it. Uh, it is also the story of a very humble birth. And, uh, we, yeah. we, uh, we're, we're at great pains to kind of take away the, the, the very beautiful Christmas cards and church art and remember that this is, this is a very poor, very humble birth. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I think that sets the stage nicely uh, for looking at uh, what, yeah, is going to seem to be you know, a very humble chapter in a lot of ways, but uh, one that, well, yeah, we'll, we will we will see the, the strong word in uh, some important aspects as well. But let's go ahead then, and we'll read through the chapter. So, yeah, various responses to this word here in Luke chapter 8 in the English Standard Version. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, They are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar, puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. 
And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the demon... And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerizines asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. And as Jesus went, the people pressed about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. He charged them to tell no one what had happened. Uh, it's so hard to even decide where to begin. Uh, huh, this chapter just has so many great things. Um, I, I I love uh, the, the stories here. I, I love, too, the, the way that Luke has tied this all together, that he has uh, the parables about the reception of the word and with these different reactions, right? Different responses. And then immediately afterwards, you've got different responses. <laughs> um, and, and I think that the interesting thing is there's a common thread about, um, about fear, um, a juxtaposition with fear and, and laughing. So you've got, you know, the, the disciples being afraid. You've got the, the unclean, uh, the Mount Unclean Spirits begging him to stay. You've got the, his countrymen saying, no, get out of here. <laughs> 
Um, you've got the people who laugh. You got the people uh, like Jairus who, who are you know in faith coming to him. So you you I mean it feels almost like a sermon here where it's like you have the parable and then you have like the real life application right after. And when you read the whole chapter, I think that's the cool thing that you maybe don't see when you look at it in little chunks that that Luke is just kind of laying it out for us here to, to see the bigger picture. Yeah, and you, and you certainly wouldn't, uh, I, I, I mean, if, unless you read it straight through like, like you just did, you wouldn't see the parable as kind of governing what comes after. In fact, you wouldn't even really think about the parable when you're looking yeah. at, say, Jairus' daughter or, or the Gerizim uh, demoniac. Uh, but, but it does tie together. And I, I think one of the links, and I had never... Uh, thought about this because typically when when you and I preach on the parable of the sower, it's typically Matthew, the math, the, hmm, the account of right. Matthew. Yeah. In Luke's account here, we have the lamp under a jar right after it. Yeah. Which to me seems a bit like an interpretive uh, mm-hmm. key to the parable, in that ad- adding an, an extra element here where the idea uh, is if you if you believe in Christ. Uh, your your words and your deeds are going to make that evident, and yeah. that's really what the rest of the par- rest of the the chapter then demonstrates. We have all these different people, and it, and it, and I like too how it's not like neat categories like okay this one's the the stony ground one all this right. you know but it and it it's a whole bunch of variety of different shades of reaction to the word. And, and the mighty deeds of Jesus, um, because it's not just not just Jesus preaching. Of course, we have three accounts of his great deeds: a um, right. an exorcism, a, a, a exertion of power over nature, and then, of course, the the biggie, the re- the raising of a dead person. Well, yeah, and that's yeah, and and even there too, something that I I'm not sure I actually even thought about this um, before too, but like, even there, I think you see some structure and some interesting overlap too, right? Um, like Luke just like tells you straight up from the beginning, which is, which is interesting that Jairus's daughter is about 12 years old. Right. Mm. And, and then just, uh, but a few verses later, actually you've got that there's this woman who has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Right. And so you got 12 years, 12 years, boom, boom, just like that. Um, and, and, and even that then feels like there's something more going on here uh, where, where Luke is saying, so, yes, he did this for these for these people here. Right. Um, including a resurrection. But, you know, he's doing more than that, even for the 12. Right. We saw at the very beginning of the chapter, the 12 apostles. I mean, if, if you if you put the structure of the, the 12, the number 12 altogether, I think mm-hmm. it's another one of these things where he's saying kind of subtly here. You know, Jesus is up to something big for the whole people of God. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's an all-encompassing nature of this of this chapter in its in its various pericopes, and, and even Jesus's mother and brothers. You know, that 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 mm-hmm. little in, incident snuck in there uh, demonstrates that the people of God, his his family, are those who who hear the word of God and do it. So that they, uh, the women at the beginning. The declaration that Jesus' mother, uh, my mother and brothers, are those who who believe essentially, and uh, then all these examples of even pagans being healed, mm-hmm. um, it is it really demonstrates. You're right that this all all encompassing feel of the gospel of the of the gospel message, and the number twelve, of course, drives that home. Twelve is the number of the of the old of the twelve tribes of Israel, of course, but then twelve apostles, the church, the number of the church. Right. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that is neat, too, having the, the, the family pericope right there, right? I mean, we, we can, we, we could see that it's just kind of like, well, it's just this little thing, right? It's, uh, what, three verses? Mm-hmm. But uh, when you when you have that response in in this uh, context here, it, it is like this, it, it is this like kind of explicit permission slip to plug yourself into this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and say, hey, no, it, it yes, we, we can read this on, you know, um, level one and, and look at, you know, historically what happened. But Jesus is just kind of there saying, hey, um, I'm, I'm giving you permission. Read yourself into this story here. I'm, I'm telling you, you're, you can, you're it. You're my family. See yourself in this text. Yeah. And, and then 
at, at the end of the calming of the storm narrative. And really all of these pericopes end with kind of an ambivalent attitude <laughs> on behalf yeah. of the people who witness them. So the disciples say, well, who then is this? And it ends with a question mark. Well, mm-hmm. I, I would say anytime scripture ends a, ends an account with a question mark, it's, yep. it's the reader who is supposed to, <laughs> supposed to, to answer the question. And then yep. the same thing at the end of, uh, at the end of the Gerizim demoniac, that situation, then we've got the kind of ambivalent. We've got the, the man who proclaims about Jesus and, the people who aren't quite sure what's going on. And then finally, the, at the end, we have the, the parents of uh, Jairus and, and his wife amazed, and yeah. he charges them to tell no one. So it's this, it, it kind of does set it up for, for us to put ourselves in there, and, and the, the call is for us to believe right. what, what Jesus is demonstrating in these various accounts. Yeah, and I, I think that's well said, and it reminds me of, um, you know, we read Jonah not too long ago, and we saw how Jonah ends with a question, and how yeah. that's just, it's just very brilliantly played, you know, that, yeah, it's it's about, you know, kind of, uh, on level one, it's about, you know, going to prophesy to the Assyrians, but, I mean, it's really, it really ends up being a prophecy to God's people, saying, you know, so how are you going to view the Gentiles, right? If God loves them and God wants to save them, what are you going to do, right? And I, th- I think you're, you're spot on there, that when you, when you have that kind of story that ends that way, it is that, that uh, yeah, it, it is not necessarily explicit, but it, it's a clear signal. It's an unambiguous signal from, from the narrator anyway, even if it is implicit. That, you know, so what, what's your response going to be, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it, it is neat to see that, and I think it— um, it enriches our, our our reading here because you know we're, we we can we can I guess kind of go forward confidently knowing that we're not just kind of like I don't know just, just kind of allegorizing this and kind of spinning out levels of meaning that aren't there or reading re- reading way too much um, between the lines and things like that. So, uh, but uh, let, let's go ahead and go back here to the the top of the chapter here uh, just a couple minutes before our break, but just to kind of get get the ball rolling. Uh, so you know we have the the setup here that the the twelve are with them, um, and, and more than that, I think there's. I mean, I would translate this differently. It says that he's proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. I would say as well as the twelve who were with them, they were also doing this, which I, which I think is important. The idea that you know, as as you were mentioning here, the question is: so what what are we going to say about Jesus? What are we what are we going to proclaim? about the kingdom of God. So I think they're actually doing that from the beginning. And and then the construction there in verse two then is that, uh, and you had these women who were with him providing. So from the beginning, I think this is interesting. You've got the 12 who are proclaiming and you got the women who are providing. How do you, I don't know, how, how do you read that? Like, how do you think this kind of sets up and frames all of this? Well, if the the women are essential to Jesus' ministry in that it, it appears, certainly from this text, that they bankrolled it. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they were the ones who provided out of their means. Um, and of course, we don't know the background of all of these women. Uh, it, it, it has been suspected in church history that, uh, that one of the women that accompanied Jesus, it was her home where the, where the upper room is and where the early church met. But that's all that's all kind of pious speculation, but the mm-hmm. and, and if so, she was very well off to have a, a home that could that could house the church. But you have someone who's uh, uh, the wife of Herod's household manager. He got apparently fairly well off women yeah. here, yeah. who out of the means that they that the Lord has provided them with, uh, they are providing and bankrolling ministry so that. Uh, uh, as the, as the disciple the apostles will say in Acts, you know we don't have to, uh, um, or as Paul will say, we, the the one who preaches the gospel should receive his living from the gospel, if at all possible. So that's exactly what they're doing here. They're providing for the means so that the disciples can then therefore go forth and preach and proclaim mm-hmm. proclaim the word of God. And and that's really the same pattern that we that we have today. Um, uh, we we put men into the office and we send them to preach either yep. either here stateside or, or across the world, and then an entire wonderful amazing network uh, of lay people uh, yep. give out of however the Lord has blessed them, little or a lot, and and support the work of the church both here at home and around the world. And the, the church just simply can't function 
unless we have the generosity of lay people who yep. who have received their earning at their living from a whole variety of different vocations and yeah. circumstances, and they're giving out of out of the wonderful about abundance that they've been given to support the spread of the gospel. Well, yeah, e- even yeah, uh, vocations like managing Herod's household, right? I mean, wow. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's spot on and well said. Like the model is right here. There it is, right? Uh, all right, we're already a little bit over time. We got to take our break, everybody. When we get back, looking more at Luke chapter eight here on Nice Strong Word, we'll be right back. Here's what our listeners are saying about KFUO Radio. Hello there, uh, from Scottville, Michigan. We appreciate having KFUO streaming into our home. The programs on KFUO have really built up our faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you to all the staff for continuing to bring the good news to all the world. We will continue to keep you in our prayers. To leave a message on the KFUO comment line, call 314-996-1542. Worldwide KFUO. Concord Matters is the program where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, Christ-confessing Concordians read through and discuss the Book of Concord, which is our Lutheran confession of faith drawn from Holy Scripture, so that you too may be of one mind and confess with Christ. Be sure to listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio or anytime on KFUO.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Until we convene for Concord again, keep confessing, church. You hear our voices every day as we speak the gospel, share the latest news, or for insightful and sometimes entertaining talk. Why not share your voice with us and send us your feedback, suggestions, and questions? Leave your comment at 314-996-1542. Be sure to follow us on social media, too, so you can like, comment, and share your favorite posts. Drop an email to KFUO at KFUO.org or send a snail mail letter to Worldwide KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're looking at Luke chapter 8 today, joined by our guest, Pastor Christopher Morandi, pastor at St. John Bingen in Decatur, Indiana. Uh, Just looking at the top of the chapter, the first few verses, just seeing how you have, there it is, like the model. You've got the lay people who are providing, lay people with all kinds of vocations, right? Even managing Herod's household, um, which we've seen kind of again and again through through Daniel or Nehemiah or Ezra, right? It's not like, oh, well, you know, they have such worldly or even, you know, kind of questionable vocations. You know, we don't really want to associate with them. No, you don't even see that. Um, so, yeah, so a, a very just amazing thing where throughout the chapter we're being invited to, to see ourselves in this mission alongside our Lord Jesus Christ here. Uh, I want to invite everybody, if you are listening live, here's your chance here. Last three days here as uh, Thy Strong Word closes out in 2020. Um, you can give us a call if you're listening live, 1-800-730-2727, or if you're in St. Louis, 314-821-0850. Also, you can send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Got some questions there. Um, you know, some questions, uh, kind of like I think more kind of asking about Christmas stuff, and that's fine. That's cool. Um, but we are going to try to focus on, on Luke chapter 8. But uh, one of the questions, for instance, is it proper for the angels and the shepherds and all the wise men uh, to all believe the birth of the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes was a prestigious event in this textual time context? Yeah, th- that is interesting, right? Um, and I think that kind of gets to what Pastor Morandi was kind of speaking at the beginning, right? Like how how regal <laughs> is the the nativity story, right? Um, when it, when it is so humble and e- even here, right, there's just so much humility being displayed. Yeah. Good question. We'll have to turn to that. Uh, also you can hop on the live stream, facebook.com slash AJ Espinosa. Uh, one of the questions, uh, who are Jesus's brothers? Right. Uh, when I was just pulling this up in Mark chapter six, it says, uh, you know, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us. 
and they took offense at him, right? So you, you do actually have the Gospels naming some of the Lord's siblings, at least uh, those, James, Joseph, Judas, um, and Simon, and they get named and show, uh, they show up other places, and they're important for church history um, for a couple different reasons, but remarkable, right, as important as they were, as great figures as some of them became, right, some of the first bishops of Jerusalem, um, Jesus says, well, it's not even them, it's you guys who believe my word, who are my mother and brothers and sisters. So that's that's a that's a big thing here. So yeah, but um, thanks for the question there, Paul on Facebook. I want to make sure to thank our underwriters at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation for their support. Thank you guys for underwriting Thy Strong Word, lhfmissions.org. We got a lot of uh, good stuff to chew on here. I uh, I like the way you were breaking down um, just the, the, the kind of model that we have. Do, do you want to speak a little bit to the Jesus's brothers and uh, sisters and family members? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's it's a fascinating angle. I was, I was, as you were talking about it, I was pondering how in a, in a lot of movements, now maybe religious movements, maybe political movements, uh, the, the person's mother and brothers are very important. <laughs> yeah. In fact, yeah. they're the ones who are going to get tapped for for leadership, and it's going to be, you know, in the family, so to speak. But yep. here, here, Jesus disavows all of that. Uh, blood relationship with Jesus um, through um, a through through his mother, um, uh, and of course, church history has has debated what what exactly that means throughout the, <laughs> right. the church. But but even if uh, you uh, you are related to Jesus uh, through Mary. Um, that doesn't mean anything. Now, of course, one of his brothers, James, became bishop of the Church of Jerusalem. We have evidence of that in the New Testament itself. But he didn't become that because he was the Lord's brother. That certainly was uh, was a title of respect that they did give him. But uh, just because he was the Lord's brother didn't make, make him automatically the bishop of Jerusalem. Um, well, right. It, 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 come, it comes by faith. And that, right. so that th- this isn't like uh, some sort of insider game here. Um, instead, he he expands the circle. Everyone who believes is his mother and his brothers. Right. Well, yeah, no, that that's uh, no. These are these are good points. Um, N.T. Wright in um, in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, uh, develops the same point. That what's what's fascinating about it is that in in uh, Judean history, you do see that if uh, you know the the Messiah, right? The guy who's going to be king and lead the revolt and save uh, save the people and all this dies. People look to the brothers then and say, "Well, he'll carry on then, right?" Or or the son, right? And like, "Oh, well, well, he's he he's the king, right?" You know, the king is dead. Long live the king. So, but uh, yeah, no. So you, that, that's kind of something that's very common, but you don't see that in church history. You don't. No one. No one said. And this is a point that N.T. Wright makes. No one said for a minute. Oh well, Jesus is uh, dead, but uh, here, look, James. James, he's the Messiah. Like no yeah. one tried to rally the troops around Jesus's family members. Um, however, yeah, you, you do. Uh, you're right. Um, you, you do see that James, for instance, becomes the first bishop um, of Jerusalem, and uh, and you've got some of these other characters here too who may also be significant um, in terms of uh, church leadership. So, yeah, yeah, it didn't automatically make him that. Um, but I have to imagine it probably helped. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, it's it's like an okay thing to put on your resume. Jesus's brother. Okay. Yeah, yeah I mean, we'll, we'll take it into consideration. <laughs> yeah, and John mentions that during the life of Jesus, the, his brothers were, were not really believing in him. Yeah. Uh, he says he, even his brothers didn't believe in him. Now, of course, well, obviously, after the resurrection, we, we certainly, they came around. Yeah. But, uh, well, when I, but certainly they I, had I, trouble understanding yeah. him, too. And I, and I think that actually that's, that's great because you're highlighting, I think, part of why it really kind of does end up mattering. Because it's sort of like their opposition to him in life, right, in, in his natural life, kind of is all the worse for them, right? It's like, whoa, you didn't support the Messiah and you were his own brother, Right, so like the, the level of offense is worse. It's kind of like Paul, right, where he's like persecuting the church. So for them to have that repentance and that turnaround, it's even greater, right, in in the eyes of like the kingdom of God, which emphasizes repentance and and, and forgiveness, right. So I, I think in some ways that maybe 
part of why the family members end up becoming significant because it, they, they kind of, I don't know, they have all the more to be ashamed of. And it is fascinating that when you look, for instance, um, like at the letter of James, right? Um, uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes and the dispersion, he doesn't even call himself, right? The Lord's brother. He just says he's his servant, right? So I think you see that, that the, the, the family members who do come along, they, they just have all the more humility as, as they uh, just acknowledge how much really they've been forgiven um, for that opposition when they really owed them their allegiance and support. Um, yeah, so so good good stuff uh, there. So, but getting back into where, where we were, so I mean that, that's good that we kind of looked at the the brothers and, and everything. Um, yeah, I, I like what you were saying. You know, breaking it down. So you got you know the, the twelve who are proclaiming. You got the women who are funding this, right? So everyone's everyone's involved in the proclamation of the gospel in one way or another. If you're not actually proclaiming it. You're, you're, as you were saying, you're bankrolling it um, very generously. And uh, th- though I got to say, though, too, I, don't you think that there is still even something going on with Mary and Joanna and Susanna in terms of what they're testifying? Because, I mean, look, it names them and their stories, right? Yep. From whom seven demons had gone out. Um, uh, you know, the hey, hey, uh, Joanna, the, the wife of Chusa, uh, household manager. I mean, their stories of repentance are part of the proclamation that's going on so they they seem to be it maybe they're not the ones preaching necessarily but they are through their example and and their testimony spoken testimony and and at least on some level right participating in that kind of broader picture of the proclamation wouldn't you say well and and we cannot forget that that some of these same women and i I would need to check the names but uh some of these same women and, and and others were at the cross yeah. And then also at the, at the empty tomb, of course, at the empty tomb, the first witnesses of the empty tomb. Um, right. So, so yes, so, so this is kind of setting up what Christ has done for them in their lives to this point, And they're, they're then in generosity, giving out their means. Eventually, some of them are going to become witnesses, not only of his death, but of, of his resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the witness that they have borne uh, endures to this day. Amen. Well, and you think about that, um, too, with, uh, you know, the, the Lord mentioning, um, well, I mean, really commending uh, the, the, the woman who, who pours the, uh, the perfume, right, on, on his feet and on his head, right, and the, and the witness that, that she gives and says, you know, um, they'll never stop telling stories about her, right? Like, not, not until the, the end of the age, right? So, um, so, yeah, there is something about that, that, you know, they are, they aren't, it's not like they're just being quiet. And, and giving money, right? Um, they, they're, they're, yes, they're giving from their means, but they, they, they do um, further directly that, that proclamation of who Jesus is. Um, lo- looking then kind of quickly now um, at the parable of the sower. All right. Um, it, it's really interesting, I think, when you, when you look at that, like how these, how these, how these things are structured. Um, I'll just, I'll just start with this. I think that we, uh, you know, because you mentioned the quote from Isaiah, uh, and the ESV has the title in verse nine. You know, the purpose of the parables. We we always jump to. I feel like, well, Jesus spoke in parables. He told relatable stories, right? And sometimes this is told in criticism, like, oh, you theological people, you're doing all this, you know, his, history and the, you know, Jesus. He told relatable stories that people would understand. And Jesus himself seems to contradict this because he says, I am telling these uh, super relatable stories, right, uh, so that they won't understand. <laughs> so what, what, do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, it, it's really striking. It's incredibly striking. And the, this sort of statement is in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that, uh, that Jesus tells these parables essentially to, to confirm people in their, um, well, the fancy word is obduracy, but their mm. their their opposition to hearing, their their mm-hmm. in, their refusal to hear and believe. Really, it, it's touched off in the verse before, at the end of verse eight. He who has he ears has to ears. hear, let him hear. Yeah. So yeah. if if the one the one who's actually paying attention, let him yeah. hear. But the ones who who do not, 
these parables are going to drive them deeper into unbelief um, because uh, yeah. they, they refuse to hear. They refuse to believe. And that's, that's really what the point is in Isaiah 6, is that um, Isaiah is going to go to a hard-hearted people and he's going to speak words that they're going to refuse to listen to and understand. And uh, what's really fascinating is by the end of Isaiah, the people come back and complain, and they essentially blame God for their sin. They say, well, you made us blind. You made us, stopped up our ears. And God at the end says, we, we can't play that game. Um, you, you guys, yeah. you, you, you made yourselves blind. You made yourselves deaf. But you know what? <laughs> and the, this is a message throughout Isaiah. And then it's also right here, uh, not necessarily right in this chapter, but in the context of the Gospels, who is the one who has come to open eyes of blind people? Who is the one who has come to unstop deaf ears? Well, it's Christ himself. So the, yeah. the, the one who comes to, to bring an end to this blindness, to bring an end to this deafness, is, is the very one who is speaking these parables. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, and I, and I like what, how you were explaining that in terms of confirmation, right? I, I think that, that gets at what he was saying in verse 18. Um, for the, to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Uh, feels very much like the parable of the talents, except here we're, we're kind of applying this to hearing and belief and faith, right? And, and like you're saying, um, well, and, and like, like he says there with, with the light, um, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. I think that, it, that, that helps us understand what is is a pretty hard saying, especially for us, um, that when he says, you know, what, what is it there when he quotes Isaiah, you know, uh, in verse 10, uh, seeing they may not see, hearing they may not understand, like, whoa, 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 hang on. Jesus is like, it's like he's like casting a spell on them. Like when he says this, they're just not going to believe now. That's That doesn't seem right. But I, I think that you got to look at it as he's expo- ex- he's throwing the light out there so that the people who are blind are exposed for being blind and the people that are deaf are exposed for being deaf. And when you put yourself in the ancient context where being blind and being deaf, aren't just, you know, physical disabilities or being differently abled or something like this, but they're stigmatized social categories, right? Um, that, that you, you know, people look at that as like, Oh, those are blind and deaf people. They must have sinned or maybe their parents, right? It's a social category, as much as it is anything else. And so when, when we're talking this way, Jesus is showing, hey, look, uh, you, you all thought that these were the godly people, the religious people, the people who had all their stuff together. And look, I just, I just showed them to be what they really are. Yeah, yeah the, it, it, it's, a, it's a voice of judgment, really, upon those yeah. who refuse to hear, hear his words, those who refuse to, to pay attention. Uh, to, to what is going on, and not just his words, but uh, the rest of the chapters could demonstrate when his deeds happen, those who, those who still have those hard hearts and stony hearts and uh, yeah. those well, who refuse to, to understand what's going on. And, and I, like, I like how you just put that there, word of judgment, see, because I think that's what kind of helps us break this down and understand this, that the word is strong here. It's a strong judging word and also like a, a strong word that you know uh, as you were saying confirms and, and strengthens those who have faith you know I, I think of uh you know our communion dismissal dismissal right uh strengthen you in body and soul to life everlasting right the idea of of being strengthened um and of course the, the blessing is for the people of faith who are receiving uh the gifts of god right like like this is not a blessing for just random people. So I, I, I like that idea because I, I think it takes us away from the idea that this is like um, a, a missionary parable, right? In the, in the sense of like, well, some people are going to, you know, come to faith and, you know, some people are going to be like, eh, no, we don't, we don't care what you're saying. It, it kind of moves us from that direction and, and moves us more into Jesus is saying, hey, look, guys, you didn't know it, but these people over here that you were taking for granted or belittling, they're the good soil. And these people over here that you were saying, oh, yeah, they're great and they're impressive and they're so godly, they're actually the rocky soil guys, right? It's exposing. And in that sense, it's 100% effective. It exposes everyone for who they are. Yeah. I, I think the biggest trouble comes working with this parable when we try and make it do things that it's not trying to do. And yeah. uh, I, I think in seeing that framework that, that you and I have been discussing, the, the Isaiah 6 passage on the one end, 
and then on the other end, uh, the lamp uh, being yep. that that really gives us an idea of what is he trying to accomplish with this parable. He's yep. not trying to uh, tell us how to be a good soil, uh, but right? He's 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 demonstrating and uh, how his word is received and not received, and how how things are made. Uh, his his word casts casts light on the situation and makes evident the the works of men and the thoughts of men. Yeah. Well, well said. Good summary. All right. Well, let's, okay. Let's, let's take a look at the application here, right? Cause you have this just like we were saying very deliberately laid out here in, in Luke where you have these stories juxtaposed so that we, we, we can make some connections here. And, and I think, so you've got, uh, Jesus calms a storm. You got Jesus heals a man with a demon. And this is just one of my absolute most favorite stories in Luke. Um, and, and then, uh, yeah, the, then you got the woman uh, with the discharge of blood and Jairus' daughter. So four four just like in a row here, boom, boom, boom. Um, the last two are tied together in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. What, 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 do you, what do you see as some of the common threads and we're, how we're supposed to be reading these? I know that we, we already mentioned you kind of have these kinds of open-ended questions at the end um, of, of these bits, either questions or kind of just like, hang on, so what's going to happen next, which kind of invite us into the text um, one of the, I think, other big things is that you have a, in, in every one of these cases, there is a question uh, or an explicit reference to either faith or fear, right? Or both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there, there's the, Jesus' identity, I think, runs through this in the midst of those, those themes that you've already identified, faith and fear and the questions like, who who is this and the thing that's really fascinating to me is by by the time you get to the end of the chapter uh jesus is telling them to tell no one <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's really a yeah. fascinating chapter in that the only one that confesses explicitly who jesus is is the man when he still has the demon in him so the, so the, the demon named legion uh calls him the son of the most high God. The disciples don't know who he is. Who yeah. is this, say? Yeah. Um, the people, after he raises Jairus' daughter, they're amazed. Um, we don't have quite that same emphasis on, on amazement and the confession of Jesus' name in the, in the healing of the woman, uh, but she obviously knew who he was, right? And then, and then the man, man, when he, the, the people, when they see the sign of the Gerizim demoniac, they want to get him out of town. Now, probably they're a little bit stung by... Uh, I think I can't remember which gospel writer it is. Tell us that two thousand pigs go into yeah, um, and so so they're probably hurting a bit financially. So that that probably plays into their reaction a bit. But yeah. they they don't know what to do with him. They're just they're just terrified. Get out of here. And what's really fascinating to me is at the end of there, uh, Jesus tells the guy, "Go home. Declare how much God has done for you." And then Luke tells us he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So yeah. Jesus tells him, go and talk about God, and he goes and talks about Jesus, which I think for us, certainly as readers of this gospel, that should be a very significant clue as to who yeah. this Jesus is, how we, how we are to answer that question of the disciples. The demon got it, and, and the, after the demon's cast out, he gets it. If I'm going to talk about what God has done for me, I'm gonna, I need to talk about Jesus. Yeah. And... Uh, it, it, so, so the identity, who is this guy, is kind of where they're wrestling around with that too, and the, the fear and faith in, in face of, of his great deeds. It's really, in my mind, came it, this kind of almost confused atmosphere of who Jesus is, what is he doing here, kind of will then, uh, in a sense, be, be resolved in the next chapter, because in the next chapter we've got uh, Peter's great confession, yeah. uh, immediately followed by the transfiguration. So well, and, and then again, he tells him not to not to tell anyone again, right? Um, which 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 seems. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed it out, and I, I like what you were saying about verse 39. How there is this uh, little, little shift there, right? God, Jesus, right? Uh, well, and the thing is, I think I think it kind of points to this bigger thing here that uh, that maybe gets at the email question a little bit, right? Kind of getting to the nativity as we're about to kind of celebrate that. Um, just a couple days here, um, which is that there's a tension between God's you know giving these these parables here that are about, well, people are going to, you know, speak out and they're going to proclaim and you're going to bear fruit by speaking out and by proclaiming like the disciples or by funding the mission or, you know, even like, yeah, the women are going to also testify to what they've seen. And, 
And so there, there is a impetus to, to speak out. And yet there's also this, Hey, don't say anything. So, so what's going on? And, and I think that that gets at it, that there is a, the Lord Jesus here is very deliberately wanting to get the word out there, but only in a humble and subtle and somewhat even quiet way, right? Like he, he's going to go ahead and let the, the demon possessed guy go around and tell people what happened, right? But he's not going to let, you know, the disciples uh, who, you know, James and Peter and John go and tell everyone what, what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Like, and, and that gets, I think, to, to the nativity. It's like, well, in the fullness of time, Mary shared that experience and Luke wrote it down. Um, but they didn't lead with that. Jesus didn't like go around telling everyone, hey, you know what? When I was born, there were angels and magi. You know, I mean, like no word of that on Jesus's lips at all. Right. So there's something about this. Like, like he wants to get the word out, but it's got to be on his terms. It's, and it's got to it's got to be presented in a humble way or else people are not going to get it. And they're going to mess it up and they're going to think it's a message about power, but it's about dying. Yeah, yeah. I think in Mark's gospel, we see that uh, brought to really a climax and a, and a beautiful proclamation of that, in that throughout the narrative, the very first verse of Mark's gospel says Jesus is the Son of God. But the yeah. next time a human being says it is at the cross. And so I, so I think this messianic secret is kind of what scholars will, will call it yeah. the, when Jesus tells people not, not to talk about it, really is meant to, to indicate that the only way you should view Jesus is through the cross. And, yeah. if you try, and if you try and deal with Jesus apart from his death and resurrection, as Peter's going to find out with the rebuking words of Jesus <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. after his great confession, if you try and deal with Jesus apart from his, his death and resurrection, you, you are going to have the wrong Jesus. You're going to have the wrong conception of him. You're going to be, like you said, chasing power and glory and all those things. Right. No, the, the irony is that if you if you want the kingdom and the power and the glory and all the rest, you, you've got to, like you're saying, go go through the cross. And, and it, all, it all points that way. Um, you know, these, these miracles that he performs point to what he's going to do on another level in his own passion and resurrection and what he does with us um, in, in the church, as you were saying, that the 12 tribes restored in Jesus Christ. Well, brother, all out of time. Uh, but thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversations. I feel like we, we had a number of good ones where you just brought out, as you were saying, with the Old Testament background, just helping us to connect those dots. Thank you so much. It's been a, a joy and a privilege for me to, to have you on. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure to be with you, and the Lord be with you in your future endeavors. Thank you, brother. And with you and your people. Everybody, Pastor Christopher Murat, pastor at St. John Bingen in Decatur, Indiana. All right, tomorrow we're going on to Matthew 28 with Pastor John Lukomsky. It's going to be great. Till then, I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Peace. Produced by the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.